Uh, while you're turning, let me just say it's great to be back with you. Uh, we enjoyed our, our uh, brief time in Kentucky. Uh, the conference that I was a part of was really good. It was also really interesting. I'm, I'm finding more and more, uh, because I spent over a decade in another tradition, I often get invited to conferences in which now I'm sort of the token Presbyterian. And that was certainly the case. In this conference, I, 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 I speak Baptist, uh, so I get invited, and, and it's, it's interesting to kind of be reminded of the world that I was a part of and how different it is in many ways uh, from the world that I'm now in. And uh, so it was grateful for that opportunity to hopefully be useful. Uh, it was good to see family and uh, have a little bit of time away. Gabrielle says hello. Uh, we got to see her, and that was nice, and not the boyfriend, so that was even better. Uh, so it was it was a good it was a good visit. Yeah, it's all right. I'm going to pay for that one, but that's that's good. All right, Matthew chapter five, beginning in verse twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, "You shall not murder," and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, um, uh, like all texts, this is a great text. We don't like it but it's a great text. So Lord, we pray that your word would have its work not only in wounding us, because Father, this text will gut us, but we pray that we will also see the hope of the gospel in the midst of this particular text, uh, because we understand desperately how much we need it. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Two weeks ago, we heard Jesus make a revolutionary statement. Now, I realize that uh, we throw terms around like revolutionary statement or revolutionary product. We throw it around all the time. I remember when a Mountain Dew came out with a wide mouth Mountain Dew can, and that was going to change the world. But Jesus' statement from two weeks ago, when he tells his gathered followers and disciples that they are the salt of the earth, that they are the new covenant people of God, truly is a revolutionary statement. Now, since the law of God had long been an identifying characteristic for the people of God, last week you heard Andrew Leitner tell us of Jesus' assurance that he hadn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather he'd come to fulfill them. 
Chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. Well, in our text for this morning, in fact, it's going to be uh, what we're going to look at the next. There are five different sayings. We're going to look at them over six weeks because we'll take a week off for Easter. But in this next series of texts, Jesus shows us the full depth of the law. The law does not simply address our external actions. Rather, the law is targeted at our internal life. God's law is not just aimed at getting external obedience, though it certainly includes that. Rather, the law of God is not just about external obedience, it's also about a sense of internal obedience. It's not just my actions, it's also my attitudes. If you're a student of American political life and the way that culture and politics tend to intersect in some interesting ways, then you're probably aware of the fact that about 30 years ago, evangelicals changed the way they talked in the public square. We talked, we stopped speaking about Christian virtues and again, and instead began talking about family values or traditional values. Virtue was out and values were in. Well, over the next six weeks, we're going to see that Jesus' words move us away from values and back to virtues. Particularly, he's interested in kingdom Virtues, not conservative virtues, not family virtues, though there are ways in which they overlap. But he's particularly interested in that those who are the salt of the earth, those who are the new covenant people of God, make known and manifest to a watching world particular kingdom virtues. Well, if you look at your outline this morning, you'll see there a big idea. And the big idea in one sentence, hopefully, is what the sermon is about. And our big idea for Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26 is this. Jesus authoritatively drives home the causes and consequences of our anger and shows us the true depth of God's law. First, we want to take dead aim with the law of God. We want to take dead aim with the law of God. I grew up in church rather naively thinking that when it came to the Sixth Commandment, I was good to go. I had never, after all, actually, literally, physically murdered anyone. In fact, I recall being a third grader in Sunday school class, sitting with my friend, our pastor's son, Mike Fowler, as we were going through the Ten Commandments, and Mike and I were both like, well, okay, we've dropped a few swears, but other than that, we're good to go. There's only one of these commandments we got to worry about. I also recall as a younger man sharing my faith with a friend, and having this friend tell me that he really hadn't done anything bad in his life. He was fundamentally a pretty good person. And truth be told, if you were judging from an external standard, he was right. He was a really good dude. I mean, like, he actually drove the speed limit. 
He drank some, but never to excess. He didn't smoke. I don't think he cheated on his taxes. He was a good dude. So when I would talk to him about the gospel and his need for the gospel, yeah, maybe. Jesus reminds us in our text for this morning that the law of God and our need for the gospel in our lives is not just about external actions. It's not just about the way that we behave in the world. Rather, the law speaks to and addresses our, inter our internal life. That when we are angry, when we insult someone else, or when we hold someone else in contempt, we are guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. We're guilty of murder. Now, there's a good news, bad news component to this. Let's get the bad news first. First, we, we have to understand that Jesus' approach and what Jesus is teaching us absolutely guts our self-righteousness. If you're here this morning and you've ever been angry or bitter, if you're here this morning and you've ever spoken words of, of insult or abuse to someone, if you're here this morning and you've ever been haughty or arrogant or condescending towards another person, if that's you, you've broken the sixth commandment. Friends, it's not too far a reach to look around and go, hi, we're all murderers in this room. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news isn't just what you would think it would be, namely the gospel, that if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. But there's another bit of good news, and it's a piece of good news that's probably more significant now than it has been at probably any other time in our culture. See, the good news is that when we understand the law this way, it means that God is calling me to live a life where the external and the internal actually complement one another. I don't have to walk around like some kind of hypocrite. I don't have to pretend to be on the outside, something that I'm not on the inside. And so there can be an integrity. There can be a holistic oneness to my life. I can walk around and go, you know what? I hate your guts. I need to repent of that. I need to know that God will forgive me for that. But I don't have to walk around and go, you know, yeah, I know I should say I really hate you, but I can't say it. Like I really do. And I really want to say it. But I can't. And so we walk around with this sense in which uh, we're all just profound hypocrites. And we can't own it. And we can't admit it. And there's nothing we can do to have our outside match what's going on with our inside. Now, if you're my age or older, this is not that big a deal. 
right? We're just culturally, we're a little more comfortable with certain levels of hypocrisy. We just are. But if you're younger than, say, about 45, if you're Gen Y or younger, this is a really, really big deal. Because you've grown up in a world in which people say one thing and do something entirely different, and you're just tired of it. You're sick to death of it. And so if you're here this morning and you think that Christianity or Jesus or the church, if you think that those things just serve as cover for people to be just complete and utter hypocrites, sadly, in some sense, you're right. But you need to know that Jesus' words this morning are telling us exactly the opposite. That the law of God is intended to take dead aim at our internal lives. And the intention of God and the gospel is that who we are externally and who we are internally should not be a matter of this kind of weird hypocritical existence. But rather, there can be an integrity. There can be a holistic oneness between who I am to the world and who I am on the inside. Well, we need to consider then the motivation behind our action. It's interesting that as Jesus unpacks what's going on, when he says, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, and then he says, hey, but wait a minute, it's not just about the externals, it's also about the internals. He unpacks for us and gives us this kind of, if you would, this sort of strange progression. And he does so because he's desiring something for his followers. He's desiring something for the new covenant people of God that's far greater, far more authentic, far more God-honoring than what was in its place. Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. This is what precedes this whole conversation. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven. Well, what's that mean? Well, understand that in Jesus' day, the scribes who were the lawyers and the Pharisees who were kind of the leaders of the public and worshiping life of God's people, uh, they had all kinds of rules and commandments, and they had all kinds of instructions that were built around the Ten Commandments. And so, in order to make sure that people didn't break the commandment, for example, uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, they passed laws like, you can walk this far on the Sabbath and not do work. Or, if you're, a, if you're a tailor, if you make your living sewing, and you walk about and you've got a needle and thread stuck in your garment, because that's sometimes what people do, if you do that, you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath because you've done work. And they had literally thousands of these kinds of little commands. And the idea behind it was, they wanted to be able to walk in front of the people of God and say, you know what, I've kept the Sabbath. I've not, I'm not guilty of breaking the Sixth Commandment. By setting all of these rules and regulations around the law, they were trying to insulate themselves from the law. One writer put it this way, they edited the law to close the gulf between themselves and God. Instead of examining the law and being mindful of the gap between them and God. So Jesus unpacks it for us in such a way that you can't build rules and regulations and walk away from this unscathed. 
Look at what he says in verse 22. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. You ever been angry? Now, I realize there is a sense in which there's a kind of righteous anger. I realize there are occasions in which anger, quite honestly, is the appropriate uh, response. And I think we'd all love to sit here and go, yes, pastor, every time I'm angry, I'm righteous in my anger. Well, friends, Jesus is giving us these wonderfully liberating words, don't hide behind your supposed righteous anger. No, where there is anger, where there is hatred, where there is malice, where there is rage, Jesus says, you're liable to judgment. How about a good insult? I got to be honest, I love a good insult. There's a part of my jaded, sarcastic heart that takes great pride in that kind of smack talk. One of my favorite Winston Churchill stories is Churchill goes to a, a, a party and there's a very well-known aristocratic woman there and Churchill was quite fond of, uh, of uh, adult beverages and uh, he's at the party and he's three sheets to the wind. And the woman comes up to him and she says, Mr. Churchill, you're drunk. Here was his response, Madam, that is true. However, tomorrow morning I shall be sober and you will still be ugly. I love that. I, I love that kind of insult. And Jesus says, if you've ever done that, if you've ever given that kind of verbal barb, if you've ever vilified someone, you've broken the sixth commandment. In fact, he says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And then, if you've ever been guilty of contempt, if you've ever been guilty of looking at somebody and thinking, or maybe even saying, you're an idiot. That's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Look at his words. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Why does Jesus do this? Why does he take this standard that a group of well-meaning people can look at and go, hey, I'm okay, I'm scot-free, I I'm, I'm not a murderer, and suddenly turn it on its head in such a way that all of us are sitting here going, holy cow, I've broken the sixth commandment I don't know how many times. Why does he do that? Well, he does it because graciously God is seeking to drive us to repentance. He wants to drive us to the place in which we are gutted by our own sin and our own guilt. He wants to drive us to the place in which we're crying out to God the words of the tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Not the words of the Pharisee in that parable who say, God, I thank you, I'm not like the other people. Some of you have been around actual physical murderers. In fact, some of you have probably given them a ride to where they were going to be staying for a while. 
But friends, Jesus is telling us that each and every one of us sitting here this morning are just as guilty of breaking the sixth commandment as someone who has literally physically murdered another human being. He's driving us to repentance, but he's also driving us to himself. How is it that we're forgiven of this kind of heinous sin? How is it that we can find any kind of assurance that God is going to forgive us? Well, Ella read it for us this morning. In Psalm 51, we understand that not only is God not merely concerned with the externals, but remember what he said. He said, God, you desire truth in the inmost parts. And then as he goes through and he confesses, there's a point in which Psalm 51 turns, and David, now suddenly aware of the fact that he's going to be forgiven and that there's forgiveness to be had, David's psalm, his song entirely changes. Friends, when we understand that we're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, and when we cry out to God for that, and when we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're forgiven. We're forgiven. We're not going to walk around going anymore going, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a very nice person, but at least I haven't killed anybody. No, you have. You're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment, but here's the good news. I love, there was a, an old Presbyterian pastor and evangelist named Jack Miller, and he used to say, this was kind of his catchphrase, cheer up, you're worse than you thought. And friends, that's true here. My name's Kyle, I'm a murderer. And in the murder of the Son of God, there's forgiveness to be had. I who am guilty of shedding blood, I can be forgiven by the one whose blood was shed. But here's the other thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus is not only driving us to repentance, and yes, he's driving us to himself, but he's also driving us to cultivate the kind of internal life where such things are not allowed to run free. Now we're talking about virtue. Now we're talking about the fact that when I look at literally my brother and I think to myself, you're an idiot, there's a check. There's a check in which I'm going, no, you know what, I need to repent of that. And not only do I need to repent of it, but you know what, I, 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 man, God, would you, would you, would your spirit do his work in my life so that I'm not walking around like a condescending fool? Would you do your work in my life? Would you, would you help me with uh, the anger and the insults and the vilification and the contempt? Because I realize that every time I do that, I'm, I'm literally murdering my fellow human being. Or I'm, I'm, I'm excuse me, I'm metaphorically murdering my human being. And I'm, I'm, I'm guilty. So it drives us to cultivate the kind of life inside, to, to, to think and to feel in such a way that those kinds of things aren't allowed to run free. Do I relish a really good insult? Yes. Should I? No. 
And one of the things that Jesus is calling me to is he's calling me as an individual, as a follower, is to be like, hey, um, how about if we work on that? How about if we address that? How about if you understand that being a murderer and being cool with it is probably not a good thing? Let's start there. So we need to consider the motivation behind our actions. And when we get that, it will drive us to repentance, it will drive us to Christ, and it will drive us to cultivate a kind of internal life where these things just can't run free anymore. Uh, it's, I don't know if you, um, if you subscribe to Christianity Today or to the Religious News Service or all sorts, um, but there's been a really big story over the past month or so. Uh, a very well-known Christian speaker, writer, author, uh, who happens to be female, announced that she's leaving the denomination that she's been a part of her entire public ministry. And probably more importantly for that, for that ministry, uh, to be brutally honest, is she's taking, she's written a bunch of books and Bible studies, and they were all published under that denomination's publishing arm. And she's now saying, uh, I've voided my contract with them. I'm not only am I leaving the denomination, but I'm leaving the publishing house. And the publishing house is going, wait a minute. Uh, this lady has made us millions and millions of dollars. We have a problem. And it made the news. In fact, it made the New York Times. And the reason she, she was asked, why are you leaving? What's going on? And she's like, it's not a doctrinal thing. It's not. It, it, and basically what it came down to was, uh, there were folks in that particular denomination who, as, as this lady wrestled through, what's her appropriate place as a woman in terms of the public preaching and teaching of the word? And more importantly, as she dealt with her denomination's charges of various and assorted kinds of sexual abuse, as they dealt with kind of uh, a systemic and historic history of racism, she spoke up. She spoke up. She shared her own uh, story of being a victim of sexual abuse. And she shared the stories that she had of sitting with uh, her brothers and sisters in Christ who uh, are not Anglo. And the pain she felt in that and the pain she understood that they were having and the great desire that she had. And she wasn't saying, hey, uh, here's what we need to do. She was just saying, this is not how it ought to be. And we need to pay attention to this. I don't know what the answer is, but let's start by caring and move from there. And friends, for that, she was vilified. She was attacked. Jesus would say she was murdered repeatedly. The writer David French uh, who's really thoughtful, uh, excellent writer, David French, in commenting on her departure, said, you know, we need to understand that uh, when, we, when we engage in this kind of character assassination, uh, we are really making public our apostasy from the gospel. That when we think we're doing God's work by vilifying other people, when we think we're doing God's work by showing our malice and our hatred and our contempt and we're insulting them and we're vilifying them, what we're really doing 
is we're making public our own apostasy. That brings us to the third point. Beware the consequences of your actions. Beware the consequences of your actions. Now, we need to understand that when Jesus says these words, there's a bit of irony behind them. Remember, Jesus is a Jewish male. He's a Palestinian male. Uh, the Jews, uh, the, the, the Palestinian, uh, Palestine is under Roman rule. And there's a group of uh, Romans who are ruling over everything. And there's also a group of Jewish elite who are basically, excuse me, in cahoots with the Romans to make sure that the, the Jewish na or the, the nation of Israel uh, remains subject to Rome and to her rules. And they were brutal. They were absolutely brutal. I mean, the ways in which uh, the Romans excelled in sort of um, verbal and physical abuse and the things that they would do to people on a daily basis to remind them of the fact that they were under the yoke of Rome. It was just stunning. So it is a bit ironic that Jesus says... Whoever engages in the kind of behavior that, by the way, Rome and the Jewish elite were famous for, is going to be subject to judgment. They're going to be subject to the council. Here's Jesus saying, hey, council members, guess what? When you keep acting like you're acting, you're the ones who are going to be held accountable. He's being tremendously ironic, and he's reminding us that the kind of judgment and the kind of counsel that he has in mind is not merely in the here and now. And he makes it crystal clear to us in the end of verse 22. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Friends, the kind of consequences that Jesus is thinking about are not just in the here and now. These are talking about eternal consequences. You see, if we walk around and we think that I can just vent my anger, I can vent my rage, I can vent my hatred, I'm not killing anybody, that I can insult and vilify, that I can have an ha a haughty attitude, that I can hold other people in contempt and I can either call them a fool or at least think it, Jesus is saying to them, listen, you can confess whatever you want with your lips. You can sit there all day long and think God and I are okay, but you've broken the sixth commandment and you're liable to the hell of fire. It's a good word for us, I think. We tend to be rather consequence-driven And it needs to change for us that just because uh, you've not been brought to justice in this life doesn't mean that you're free. One of the things we said when we began this series in the Sermon on the Mount was that Jesus' view of uh, Christian of human flourishing is one that is necessarily eschatological. In other words, it's not just about this life, it's also about the life that is to come. 
And so if you think you can walk around manifesting that kind of anger, that kind of malice, that kind of rage, that you can insult and vilify people, that you can hold people in contempt, okay, you may not ever get brought up on charges here and now. But you still have eternity to gain or to lose. And so beware. Beware the consequences of your attitudes and your actions. I love that Jesus points us to the life that is to come. I love that he reminds us that just because we are seeing injustice, just because we're seeing anger and hatred and malice and rage and insult and verbal abuse and vilification and contempt and haughtiness, just because those things are running wild, not just in the world in which we live, but there are days in which those things run wild in our own hearts. That's not the final word. It's not the final word. And as we come to the table this morning, we're reminded not just of the shed blood and broken body of the Lord Jesus, but we're also pointed to the new heavens and the new earth. We are reminded as the people of God that there is another council that is yet to come. That there is earthly judgment and then there is heavenly judgment. And Jesus is concerned as he reminds his followers that the judgment he's worried about, the judgment that he is primarily concerned with, is that of the kingdom of heaven. The table reminds us of the reality of that kingdom. The table points us to the new heavens, the new earth. The table points us to the kingdom in which our righteous judge will judge all of us for not just what we have done and said, but for what we have thought and what we have felt. Let's pray. Father, we we bless you. We bless you for the way that this text just guts us. And we pray that we would be a people who are marked and characterized by repentance. And Father, we bless you for the way that this this that Jesus is driving us to himself. I'm a murderer. We are murderers. And we are in desperate need of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for the way in which Jesus' words drive us to understand that we can and ought to be by the fact that we are indwelled by your spirit. We, we ought to be cultivating a different kind of internal conversation. That we want to be mindful anger and malice and contempt, hatred, or these things cannot be given free reign in our, in our hearts and in our minds. That we need to repent. We need to turn to Jesus. 
And we need to cultivate that kind of life, not just outwardly, but inwardly as well. And so, Lord, we come to the table. We thank you for the way it speaks to us of the atoning death of the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for the way it points us to the new heavens and the new earth, to the judgment that is yet to come, a judgment that no one is going to escape or evade. We look forward to that day and we pray that you would use, that your spirit would use your word this day to help fit us for that judgment that we know is certainly coming. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.